One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Curtis Sittenfeld, author of the novel Romantic Comedy. You know, fiction has to have the texture of fiction above all. It can't it can't be like political propaganda. We'll be back with Curtis Sittenfeld after these essential words. So June 2023 marks the 10-year anniversary of First Draft. The first episode aired on June 10th, 2013. And if the person I am today told my younger self that I'd be nearly 450 episodes deep into this show in 10 years, I would have laughed at my future self. But alas, here we are. And how did we get here? At what I would estimate is 9,000 hours of work I've put into this podcast. That's reading, researching, interviewing, editing, arranging the guests. I am the entire staff. And I guess the answer is, how did we get to 9,000 hours? Is a mixture of insanity and blind but ferocious dedication to sharing conversations about craft and literature. This isn't AI, folks. This is weekends where I sit and read and so many things in my life that get fully ignored for this endeavor. And I honestly consider it a gift to the world. It's a place where my passion and I hope some amount of finesse and skill marry together to offer this conversation you're about to hear directly to you in the intimate way that audio works. 
And if you get anything out of this episode or the hundreds that came before, or hopefully the hundreds that will come next, I am asking you in the most honest and authentic way I know how to please support this show. While I love making it and talking to authors and the entire endeavor fills me up, it does not pay the bills. And if we want to support art in this world and conversations about art and lift the curtain up and really talk about how art gets made, well, your support will help keep this show alive. It's here today because of listeners who became supporters. And that's the truth. So I'm asking you to bolster this rich dialogue, this juicy material with financial support. It's not easy to do, but sticking with this for 10 years wasn't easy to do either. And it's not going to be easy in the future. But if nothing else, it's reliable and consistent. With every episode, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create First Draft without your support. Please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member to the First Draft community. You can support the show today at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate on a monthly or annual level. As a thank you to my patrons, you receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes so you won't have to hear this again, and writing tips from my guests. Again, you can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned. At the end of the interview, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for your listening support. And thank you for being here with me today, right here in this moment. And on to the 400-something episode. My interview today is with Curtis Sittenfeld, best-selling author of seven novels, including Prep, the Man of My Dreams, American Wife, Sisterland, Eligible, and Rodham. Her story collection is called You Think It, I'll Say It. Her books have been selected by the New York Times, Time, Entertainment Weekly, and People for their 10 Best Books of the Year lists, optioned for television and film, and translated into 30 languages. Her new novel, Romantic Comedy, tells the story of Sally Mills, who is a sketch writer for a late-night live comedy show called The Night Owls, similar to Saturday Night Live. Sally is writing a sketch about how her male colleagues can date women who are more accomplished than them, more famous than them, and more good-looking, but that the female writers cannot date men above their rank. Then, a talented, handsome, and very famous pop star named Noah is both the host and musical guest and clearly has a connection with Sally, challenging the theory behind her sketch. We began with me asking Curtis Sittenfeld this question. What did you know about this book at the outset? And then how did that evolve as you wrote? You know, it's interesting because I typically write an email to my editors like my American and British editors and also my agent sort of in in opposite order my agent first um to say like this is something I'm thinking of or I've I've kind of committed to this and this is how I envision it 
And the strange part, and then I don't really look at that email for a few years. And then the strange part is more than once with the book, it's happened that I come back to it. And I think like, oh my God, I did exactly what I described. Like there are lots of small surprises along the way, but this is as I conceived of it. And I think with romantic comedy, I thought, okay, it's there's going to be a first section that takes place at the show that's like Saturday Night Live. Um, there's going to be an email section in the middle, and then there's going to be a sort of reconnection between um, the two characters, like a, a woman who's a writer for a sketch comedy show and uh, a male you know, pop singer, worldwide celebrity, and they're going to kind of reconnect during the pandemic. And all of that came to pass, although a lot of the little like nuances and personality traits were things I decided um, sort of on along the way. So it sounds like you knew the entire structure and structure is actually something that your character talks about a little bit. Um in in um, her conversations with Noah. So Sally is the main character who's the writer and Noah is the pop star that she meets at this SNL type of show um, called um, The Night Owl. So, yeah, I'm curious about structure for you. Like, is that sort of a guiding light? Yes, very much so. So like I, I mean, I think of structure above all. Actually, it's funny because just yesterday I Zoomed with a class at the Iowa Writers Workshop taught by Ethan Kanan, who was my advisor at the Iowa Writers Workshop 20 years ago. And, and I was kind of almost like publicly thanking him for teaching me everything I know about structure. He was very focused on structure and, you know, sort of borrowing that from him made me feel like I got control over my writing. His short story collection, The Palace Thief, is probably in my top five favorites. It's amazing. It's outstanding. Yeah, it's like very long short stories. And it just I think maybe just four of them. But yeah, he's he's a really magnificent writer. So once you have the structure in place, how does the rest get filled in? Are you image bound? Are you character bound? Like, how do you fill in? Like you have the bread and then what's the peanut butter and jelly? Uh, I mean, I think that I kind of, I, I sort of do the same thing over and over again in smaller sections. So I think of the structure of the whole book. Then I think of the structure. In this case, there are just three long chapters. So you know, what's the structure of each chapter? And then what's the structure of like the scenes within the chapter? So like, especially, you know, a lot of times what I do is start, write a little bit to feel my way into a project. And then, you know, when I've gotten maybe 5% in creating an outline to guide me, and I'm totally fine deviating from the outline, but I just want to have some sense of where I'm going. And I think I want to provide payoff for the reader, which I think is actually hard to do if you don't outline. Yeah, your character says um, it's in the middle of the book and she's talking about writing and she says, I don't write from a point of clarity. I write out of confusion. How much have you experienced that? Um, I definitely feel that way. Um, but I don't think I write out of structural confusion. <laughs> I think I write out of almost more like topical confusion or 
thematic confusion or you know like there's just there's some phenomenon in the world and I think that's so weird or what's going on with that you seem to have you know in your writing over the years you you do have this strong feminist voice and I'm curious if that you know how that came when you were growing up for you and how is it does it feel delicate to bring it into your characters to to find the right register for that um i mean i i do feel conscious that like sometimes people will say what's the message of this story or what's the message of this book and i feel like if it's fiction it's unusual for it to be reducible to one clear message and if it is maybe it should be an essay or even just like a bumper sticker. It doesn't, it doesn't need to be a whole book or a whole story. So I do think, you know, fiction has to have the texture of fiction above all. It can't, it can't be like political propaganda, but it is political. I mean, it's like, you know, every, every choice about what's included or not included in any particular piece of fiction is a choice, even if it doesn't feel like a choice to the writer. So, I mean, I think, I think I feel like I've probably, as I've gotten older and I'm 47 now, I've probably embraced sort of having characters who are like very opinionated. And, you know, I know that some, some readers will find them very recognizable some readers will find them annoying that's that's fine you know it's sort of like that is a kind of person who exists or you know I I think I think that I mean this is a very broad generalization but I think a lot of times as women get older you know well as it would be interesting to think about if this is um if this is generation specific but a lot of women I know who are my age I think feel more kind of actively frustrated or less patient with some gender norms that feel like they've existed for our whole life but they're they're sort of um you know maybe we put up with them more at one point or um you know, maybe like the election of Donald Trump brought them to the fore in this way where we're just kind of blunter and discussing them now. Do you think part of aging is coming into your own power? I remember I had a boss when I was in my 20s and I worked for the Seattle Chinese Post and I was so lost and she was in her 30s and she's like, you're going to come into your own power as you get older. Like, don't worry about it. And I didn't quite get it, but I do understand it. And I'm like in my fifties now and I really do get it, but maybe it just takes a few decades to get there. I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think that like, you know, one of the rewards of getting older is you've, you've just had so many more experiences. And so you can kind of contextualize the experiences you do have and you can be like, I know how to handle this, or this is, this is a setback, but I've had other setbacks and I'll, I'll get to the other side. Um, or like, I, I mean, I, I, you know, it's so, it is hard again to generalize. It's, it's funny because I feel like 
Nonfiction asks you to generalize and fiction asks you to be very specific. And I'm much more comfortable with fiction. Um, but I feel like there, I think for me, there has been this, you know, like as I've gotten older, like I'm, I'm just less willing to give other people the benefit of the doubt in terms of assuming their competence or goodwill, which is sort of unfortunate, but like, I feel like I've, I've learned from experience. I think Sally too is kind of like on the cusp of that. I mean, she, she is a writer. She didn't start off as a writer, uh, you know, like on some track to write comedy for like the most successful late night comedy sketch show she was writing for medical journals and she submitted and submitted and submitted and she's in her later 30s I think by now and Mm. she's been through the block with the men there and you you actually even have a line there where she says there was a different way I wrote when I was seeking male approval male sexual approval um, more coy reserved um, like afraid to kind of show her anger or her vulgarity. And I think this was, that was a big moment, I think, for her to realize that. Yeah, I agree. I, I And I think you're right that she sort of is, you know, further, further along the path of like becoming herself or be, being confident about her choices than she once was, but not all the way there. So in your research, uh, you know, about SNL. I know you did a lot of research about that at the end. And there's some incredible, like Tina Fey was, she's such a badass, you know, uh, female writers. But what maybe did your research show you anything new about what it was like to be a female in that room? Or there was something that kind of opened for you? Well, interestingly, I mean, there definitely have been female stars on the show since the beginning and there have been female writers on the show since the beginning um which is 1975 so i i think that like the overall sensibility of the show used to be much more male um which again is like a hard to hard to quantify, but you sort of know it when you see it. So Sally mentions um, in romantic comedy that she was born um, at the same time as the the Night Owls. That she and the show are the same age in real life. Saturday Night Live and I are the same age. Sally and um, the Night Owls were born in 1981, and Saturday Night Live and I were born in 1975. I'm about two months older, maybe like six six weeks older actually. Um, so, you know, I've been watching off and on since I was 10. And I feel like at this point, just to give one example, you know, if if a man of a male cast member played a female, it, it seems like there would have to be an awfully good reason for it. But there wouldn't necessarily have to be a very good reason for a female playing a male. And it just, it does, I mean, I don't know if it has to do with like punching up, punching down or sort of traditional positions of power, but there's something to me that tends to be much funnier about a woman playing a man than a man playing a woman. Do you have an all-time favorite sketch? It's hard to, to, 
probably say one I mean there's a few that I like like a, a sort of I mean like a classic that I love is sweaty balls with the I don't know as a, as a sort of a radio person I I assume that speaks deeply to you but no um it has Anna Gasteyer and Molly Shannon and Alec Baldwin you know sort of mm-hmm. talking about uh, uh, the the character Alec Baldwin plays his last name, I mean, as you might know, but is is Schweddy, and he he makes these delicious Christmas balls and comes and discusses them on public radio. That one is very funny, I think. I mean, there's so many. Like, it, it's interesting because on any given week, there might be not necessarily. I mean, there might be like one or zero shows, or one or zero sketches that like truly stands the test of time. But they can sometimes they can capture the zeitgeist, you know, just so piercingly or insightfully. And then um, and I mean, sometimes they are really like eternal and and funny. I mean, I'm trying to think of like um, there's a there's a one I'm trying to remember what it's called. There was what Adam Sandler has hosted in the last five years. And there's one that, where he pretends to be like a travel agent or sort of a tour guide for like Romano's tours. And he basically is saying, um, if you, if you go on this trip to Italy, I have to warn you, you will still be yourself. And it's just very funny. Like it gets at something really existential and like kind of saying like, you know, if you, if you don't like to swim or if you don't want to have sex with your spouse in the United States at home, you also won't want to in Italy. <laughs> It'll still like be you. So it's, I think that one is, I mean, again, there, there's just so much, it's like such a, such a gift. And I really like the variety of tones that SNL offers. Like, you know, it can be like sort of very, you know, shrewdly mocking political commentary. And then it can basically be like bathroom jokes and they're both funny. Yeah. You got to go low and high. Yeah. 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 Is that something that you also strive for? Because this was a funny book. It had, I mean, you were writing sketches and you don't, I mean, just from the variety you mentioned from SNL, were you conscious of moderating that and how did you, how do you approach writing comedy if you think about it? Well, so, you know, I think of SNL as primarily funny and then having some emotional moments. And I, I think of romantic comedy as primarily emotional and having some funny moments. So I, I know that I'm not a comedy writer and, you know, I I knew I was opening myself up to, to, some people saying like this book is not funny like it's, it's called romantic comedy but it's it's not actually successfully comedic i mean it doesn't i think the fact that i'm experienced as a novelist makes me not that phased by that kind of criticism because a hundred percent of the time no matter what book i write no matter what the topic is i will get some level of criticism the question is just sort of like the ratio like what is the ratio of positive to negative feedback so so it's like again there's a 100% chance that i'll get some negative feedback and if i write a book set in a comedy world i will have some people being like well, that's not funny but i mean i just i think i approached it the way i approach anything 
any other thing, like just like almost like trying to make it seem realistic in this comedy sketch world and not not treating it like it's like anything to do with writing humor is so entirely different from everything else. I mean, I will say in a very specific way, um, you know, going through life, I'll sometimes think, oh, I'm in this absurd situation and this reminds me of an SNL sketch. And so I would jot down for a few months whenever I thought this is like an SNL sketch, I would jot it down. So you're mentioning, um, you know, balancing out the criticism. Do you read? Do you read that? Um, so I do, especially at first, like I'll, I'll read, I'll read, you know, early reader reviews. And I feel like in the 18 years since my first novel was published, there's, it's the sort of way that a book exists online or the way that feedback exists online is always kind of shifting and evolving. I'm not even sure of the logic of this, but there were hundreds of Goodreads reviews well before my publication date. And I would look at them just to kind of get the overall, like, like, it's kind of interesting if someone says, oh, I mean, overwhelmingly people have been like, this book is really fun. I read it in 24 hours or I read it in 48 hours or it made me swoon or I stayed up till three in the morning or, you know, like I wish I wish someone like Noah Brewster would fall in love with me. Um, and like, that's all really sweet and wonderful and and delightful. And like I meant for it to be a book that, that brings people pleasure. So it's incredibly gratifying. It also, it is a little bit like a focus group where I can see like some people say, three chapters in an entire book, like that's not enough chapters. It needs to be more broken up. So I can just kind of almost like see like, oh, this is this is what's, you know, kind of appealing to people. And this is what's maybe like rubbing people the wrong way or something. And then, um, you know, I'll read, I'll read reviews from publications I especially respect. And, but as more and more reviews accumulate both kind of critic reviews, critical review, you know, like from, from a professional critic and then from readers, I reach a saturation point where it, it just feels like, it feels like I, I don't think like everything has been said kind of. And especially if it's like a negative review and it doesn't seem like it would have to be a very smart negative review to make me want to read it as, as time passes. But if, I mean, if, again, if it was in the New York Times, no matter how negative, I would read every word. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors into people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, we'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She was in pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'd love to talk a little bit about Sally's character. Um, as we mentioned earlier, she, you know, started off writing in medical journal journals. She is divorced. She writes um, specifically for two women at the show, Viv and Henrietta, who are also her friends. She's not the head writer. She um, she writes, she shares an office with this guy who is um, a Pete Davidson sort, maybe, who, um, maybe. <laughs> who is dating um, a, a beautiful star, like just gorgeous, just way above his league. And when we meet her, she's writing this sketch called the Danny Horst Rule. And it's kind of basically like that the writer's there. I think about Colin Jost, too, and Scarlett Johansson, perhaps, um, end up with these like way above their league women, but that women don't end up with way above their league men. So that's kind of the premise at the beginning. And so she's writing that and she does talk a lot about like using anger to fuel her creativity. And um, we get this sense like there is this bitterness and she's a strong feminist. And I just want to talk a little bit about who she is when we meet her and then we can talk more about once she meets Noah. Um, so who she is when we meet her, I mean, again, I think that she's professionally successful. She's sort of, she's actually, I think personally pretty happy in terms of her friendships, her job, but she, she has a, you know, kind of situationship romantically where I think it feels to her like that's, that's as good as it's going to get for her. Like it's not, she's actually not really, you know, pining for, for her true love because she's sort of accepted that, that true love, whatever that means is either false or just doesn't exist for her. Um, So, and then, and then, you know, I think that, that, even when she meets Noah and there starts to be this evidence that maybe, maybe he's someone that she can feel very close to in ways that she actually has always wanted. She's still kind of self-sabotaging um, and, you know, has trouble getting out of her own own way because she still, she clings to these beliefs that are, they bum her out. And yet, she's sort of comfortable seeing the world in this disappointed way. You know, she is, she's very funny. I think she, she's smart in a way at how, I mean, I don't know the real internal dynamics of SNL, you know, she stays out of Nigel's way, which is uh, a Lauren Michaels type of character. Um, and I think because of it, she's probably rewarded more than she even realizes that her sketches get on often and she just kind of stays out of the way. But She's also kind of entering this time where it could be too long. And you talk in there a little bit about the curse. I think it's called the curse of TNO that if you stay too long, you miss the boat on the next opportunity. It reminds me actually a little bit if you've ever read um, Elizabeth Gilbert's Big Magic, like that ideas kind of stay above your head for a while, ready to land yeah. on you. But if you wait too long, they'll find someone else. Yeah. Oh, interesting. It's funny. I actually, I, I think I've read some of that, like some excerpts of it when it was published, but I did not read the entire book. Although I, th- I mean, I think she's a very interesting person. Yeah. So she's kind of, you know, Sally's kind of facing this, like, I have to leave at the right time. And is this the right time? And 
I want to talk about when Noah comes, but can we talk a little bit about the Danny Horst rule? So that is the sketch she's doing. And that's kind of, to me, it seems like it's the narrative that propels the whole story is the story is actually proving her wrong. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So, I mean, the rule, which of course is not really a rule, except except in Sally's head is, uh, you know, as you kind of alluded to earlier that like, Men can date above their station, but women almost never can. And especially age-wise, too. You know, the women aren't dating 25-year-olds in the same way. And so Noah comes on the show, and they have sort of a... They have some moments where they're connecting, they're writing scripts together, he's singing, and their eyes connect, and... um. But then she kind of blows it like in the bar. He's, she kind of makes a comment to him about mostly dating models. And he's a very sincere, nice guy. I mean, actually throughout, he he never played anything wrong. She was the one that just kept getting in her way. Yeah, I think that's accurate. And, and it's funny because people have said, like, why is he so nice? And I think, why would we want to read a book about, you know, an asshole? <laughs> like, like, or like this, I mean, this book is supposed to be fun and pleasurable. And so like, I just, I don't think him being an asshole would be the right literary choice for this book. No, he was just a good person who liked her. Yeah. And so after she kind of blows it, two years pass and then we go into COVID and they start writing emails back and forth. So it sounds like you knew that the email section was going to be COVID. Yeah. Well, it's funny because, you know, I, I started writing this book in the summer of 2021 and I actually, um, you know, in, in 2020, a year prior, the spring of 2020, my novel Rodham had come out which was this um, sort of alternate history of the life of Hillary Clinton in which she did not marry Bill Clinton. She, she met him and fell in love with him, but didn't marry him. And it was, it was a pretty long book and involved lots of uh, sort of political research and doing things like, like watching Trump's 2016 presidential uh, campaign announcement for research so so that was sort of the headspace that I was in. And people in conversations like this, people would say, um, you know, what are you going to write next? And I would say, I want to write something short and fun. And I started writing a book and worked on it for about six months and, you know, came to the conclusion it was not short and also not fun. And so then, you know, it's it's now almost summer 2021 and I'm kind of trying to figure out like what fictional world do I want to live in? And, you know, at that point, the pandemic has been going on for more than a year. The COVID rates were very high in Minnesota where I live. And it was the moment when it became clear that having a vaccine um, would not, didn't mean you were kind of in the clear. Like it was, it was, you know, there were still widespread breakthrough infections Um and so I thought I had thought to myself, like my family had been watching SNL and I had thought someone should write a screenplay um, for a romantic comedy that has the premise, the romantic, you know, like a, a female writer makes fun of this pattern. And, and then, a, um, you know, dreamy male pop stars, the guest host, and they have chemistry and 
and her beliefs about this pattern get ca called into question. And so I thought to myself, like, oh, instead of <laughs> me sort of, you know, thinking, I hope someone will notice this and write a screenplay for a romantic comedy that maybe I should be the one who actually writes it. And so then then at that point, I kind of moved forward. Um, did Hillary read your book? I have never received any evidence to suggest that she has. And I think I think she probably hasn't because she's so famous that I think she probably has learned to tune out uh, forms of attention that feel, you know, useless, which I think I I am on the whole Hillary admirer. I would think if I were her, I'd probably consider my my book to be like a minor distraction. That's really not worth giving attention to. Um, is romantic comedy going to be made into a movie? Uh, it's been optioned and I'm hopeful. And because of its roots, you know, because I thought someone should write a romantic comedy. And then I was like, okay, well, I'm not really a script writer. So I'll, I'll write it in novel form. So it seems plausible. I mean, you know, my other books have been optioned and, and none have made it on screen. So it's nothing is really guaranteed until, until you're like, you know, you've bought your popcorn and you're sitting in the theater or you're sitting in your couch with your TV on. If it was made into a movie, would you want to be in it? Not as the star, would but I, yeah. Oh, like, would I? Would I want to be like, you know, like, like woman too in the <laughs> in the park or something, walking her dog? Sure, sure. But not the star. I, I I would not. I think I know my own limits. Like, I'm actually a terrible actor, and in fact, you know, this is another thing that sort of changed during the the you know almost twenty years since I my first book came out. There's so there are so many requests for essentially for like screen content, like, you know, can you do this little video for this, for TikTok or for, you know, Instagram or whatever. And if ever someone else tries to essentially write a script for me, I'm really bad at remembering it. And I'm really like awkward in my delivery. Like I almost, I do think because this is what we all do. I think sometimes I'm performing the role of myself, but I can only perform the role of myself. Like as I've chosen to, like if someone else was like, and I want you to come out and say these three sentences, I just, I like almost can't do it. Cause I'll think like, I would never say those words. Or I would never construct a sentence that way. <laughs> That's so interesting, though, because I think writing is such a deep act of embodiment and empathy. Like when you're writing, you have to in many ways, you have to become your characters. You have to be Sally when you're writing her dialogue and you have to be Noah when you're writing his dialogue. I agree. I actually totally agree. But in a weird way, it's like the written act of that is really different. I mean, I've even had another writer one time told me that he took um, acting classes to kind of become a better writer for, for exactly the reasons you're describing. But there is something about like being in person where I just feel really ridiculous. It's <laughs> like, you know, pretending to be anybody besides myself. I could never be a, a SNL cast member. I could never, like I'm terrible at accents or I, I could never, you know, like, like just like unselfconsciously, you know, dance, whatever, whatever they have to do. Yeah. I think you have to lose yourself in a whole 
different way. Like as much as you might have embodied Sally, you still like could go to your fridge and get a apple juice and you're you like, it's like you're, you have to give up something in your body to act like that. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think there are parallels. And in fact, like, um, I actually once read a description that Kate McKinnon, you know, I think it was actually someone else describing Kate McKinnon playing the role of Hillary um, on SNL. And I thought to myself, I feel like that's what I did. Like, like we imagine the world from Hillary's perspective and everyone else looks at Hillary and kind of judges her from the outside. They don't, they aren't her from the inside. And so I do think, again, there are parallels, but just like to be physically present in front of an audience, I can be myself, but I can't really be anyone else. I mean, that's a certain skill you have to allow yourself a certain kind of vulnerability and letting go that we aren't born with. Yeah. Or, or we are born with it and then we, it gets, you know, eliminated from us. Exactly. So Sally, after she tells him like you date models, they sort of have this awkward parting and then two years go by and they start this, he emails her and they start this very intimate, very more vulnerable, um, correspondence and it's going pretty fast and Mm -hmm. like in the middle sally just throws a bomb in there she just like everything's going really nice and then she's like he's asking her questions and she's saying things like i can't help start to wonder why i'm trying so hard to entertain you and to compliment you and to assuage you because you're a celebrity who's bored during the pandemic and I'm lucky to get attention from you. Like she really, I mean, she's really undermining. She's, she's so transparent in her, um, in her lack of confidence there, but it's Mm -hmm. also, she, she will just do anything to make this not happen because it's not her rule. She doesn't believe that this is possible. She doesn't believe that she can get this happily ever after. And I think that it's something that so many women do, but I mm-hmm. also think it must be really hard to write, like to find the right words for self-sabotaging. I, ah. Was that, was that like, how was that for you writing those scenes? I mean, again, I don't I, like, I don't really think of how the scenes would be summarized or described. I just think of what happens in the scenes and how to execute that. So I I wasn't like, okay, here's where Sally self-sabotages. Although, I mean, you're definitely right. This is where she self-sabotages. But I just thought, okay, she's gonna like, you know, she's sort of feeling like, what's going on? I'm uneasy. I need to, I need to understand. I need clarity. And my need for clarity is actually like more important than this proceeding smoothly or like it's worth the risk of blowing this up so she like you know but then she also can't even ask in a straightforward way so she she does like sort of ask around what she's asking um but i just i think i again i felt like okay the character does this and then this and then this and then the other character responds and i wouldn't think to myself this is the message i'm trying to impart i i would not think like what's something she could do to self-sabotage? Like I would think in more literal terms. She, she does talk about how she writes 
better at using rage and disappointment to fuel creativity. Is that true for you? No, I actually don't think that's true for me. I don't, I don't, I mean, and I actually, this is unprovable, but like, I definitely don't think I would ever write to try to convey a message to another person and especially not to kind of like get revenge because I just think that it's almost like you have to respect your own art more than that. You know, that's just kind of cheap. Like if you, if you have some, you know, confrontational thing that you want to say, say the thing, like send an email or, or, you know, ask the person to meet you for coffee. Like don't use fiction. Cause I just, I just think it won't for the same reason that, that, Fiction can have political elements, but it can't be primarily political, you know, or primarily like, and this is, this is why Hillary Clinton should be president or something like that. Like if that, I mean, that would be an essay that would not be a novel. Yeah. I was talking to Antonia Nelson once kind of about that, where we were talking about like when you have a political agenda it ends up being so transparent in fiction that it's you don't you can't lose yourself in the story. It's too obvious that the writer tried too hard and it 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 like fails fiction. Yeah, I think that's true. I think I do agree with that. Something that uh, Sally talks about was that they have no writing rituals. Like some people are like, let's put out our candles now and let's like make sure like you just got to get the work done there. Um, Are you like that too? Just a workhorse? Um, Well, I do. I guess I have one ritual, which is um, I have a piece of paper and I write down the time I start writing and the word count I start with. Um, oh, and the date. And then and then I kind of print what I've written for the day at the end of a writing session. So it's I mean, it's partly like a backup system and partly like a sort of progress monitoring method. Um, it's not like chanting or, you know, whatever, like lighting incense. But um, but it is I, I do sort of start and end writing that way whenever I do it. So you could, if you kept all those notes, figure out your hourly rate. <sighs> I, you know, I, I do keep the notes because it feels like by the end, let's say I only have like, it's like six little pieces of paper and they're very like, you know, my, my writing is sort of messy, but it's this weird illustration of like, this is how a novel is written and it's written incrementally. And like, and it's, you know, almost every day is very unremarkable. And then collectively it, it adds up to something that you hope is, you know, greater than the sum of its parts. I think that, I mean, it's the most cliche thing ever, but like here in Colorado, climbing a mountain, sometimes I'm like going to climb a mountain and I'm at the bottom and I'm just like, there's no way. There's just no way. And then you get there. And I'm just thinking it's the same thing. It's not one foot at a time. It's just one word at a time. And it does accumulate. Yeah, I I agree 100%. But it sure feels daunting. Huh. Um. I was glad you got the Indigo Girls in there. <laughs> I was glad I got the Indigo Girls in there. 
Are they, were they just more of a symbolic uh, band to put in there or did you have a love for them yourself? So, I mean, I first heard their music when I was in high school. I mean, I, I think Closer to Fine was popular when I was a freshman in high school in like 1989. Um, and then... I listened to them through college. I think I didn't listen to them that consistently. I mean, I actually think because of sort of changing music technology, I think there were a few years when I like didn't listen to that much music, period. Um, and then in 2016, when I was living in St. Louis, Missouri, a friend of mine invited me to go see them perform. And we did. Um, and I And I did think like, I've missed you, Indigo Girls. And I, I felt like they were real kind of, models of artistic integrity and of you know kind of aging and allowing yourself to get older and and being who you are and that really appealed to me so I'm not I mean I'm certainly a fan I'm not the level of fan um, in terms of my just kind of engagement that Sally is but I I do love the song Dairy Queen just like Sally loves it (laughs) If um, People Magazine had like one character writer, like anyone from SNL, like in one of those snapshots where they're like in the Bahamas at some island and they're carrying a book, who would you want to see carrying your book? (laughs) I think I'd have to say Pete Davidson. I mean, and I also I feel like because. You know, it's sort of like the the shadow of Pete Davidson looms over romantic comedy. I mean, I don't think there's any exact one to one. Like, obviously, his dating patterns did did influence the book. I think Pete Davidson seems like sweet, charming, talented, tenderhearted, and I'm not surprised that he dates talented and beautiful women. Like, I think you know who 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 else are they supposed to date? Like, <laughs> I think I'd want to see Lauren Michaels carrying it. Ha! <laughs> that that would also be very rewarding. Do you know if they've read it or if have you gotten feedback? No, I um no, you know, I think that SNL is such a sort of uh cultural institution that I think it doesn't feel the need to comment on its own media or whatever. And you know, there's there's quite a few um depictions of people in movies who are based on Lauren Michaels, including the most famous one is Dr. Evil and Austin Powers. So I just, I don't, I mean, again, I think it's kind of equivalent to like my writing about Hillary Clinton. Like it's, uh, it's not, I don't think it probably romantic comedy probably looms that large for Lauren Michaels. I hope it's in people magazine. I really do. (laughs) We'll see him at the Hamptons, like in his little boxer bathing suit, carrying your book. Sure. You're, you're sketching a very vivid picture. (laughs) Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yes. So this, this is actually from um, Gia Tolentino's trick mirror. And it's, it's the very beginning and it, it, it's the introduction actually, like even before the first page and it perfectly captures something that's like, why I cannot write nonfiction, which Gia writes excellent, you know, incredibly smart nonfiction. But I, it, it just, it's, I think it captures like a larger outlook that I have. Um, so she says, um, she talks about that she was writing the book between spring 2017 and fall of 2018. 
Throughout this period, I found that I could hardly trust anything that I was thinking. A doubt that always hovers in the back of my mind intensified that whatever conclusions I might reach about myself, my life, and my environment are just as likely to be diametrically wrong as they are to be right. This suspicion is hard for me to articulate closely, in part because I usually extinguish it by writing. When I feel confused about something, I write about it until I turn into the person who shows up on paper, a person who is plausible, trustworthy, intuitive, and clear. It's exactly this habit or compulsion that makes me suspect that I'm fooling myself. If I were, in fact, the calm person who shows up on paper, why would I always need to hammer out a narrative that gets me there? I've been telling myself that I wrote this book because I was confused after the election, because confusion sits at odds to my temperament, because writing is my only strategy for making this conflict go away. I'm convinced by this story, even as I can see it's photo negative. I wrote this book because I am always confused, because I can never be sure of anything, and because I am drawn to any mechanism that directs me away from that truth. Writing is either a way to shed my self-delusions or a way to develop them. Amen, Gia. <laughs> Do you want to say anything else about that? No, I think I think amen covers <laughs> my feelings. <laughs> Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed from the first draft or something you really like. So when the book opens in 2018, her mother, who she was very close to, um, died a few years back. And so I kind of, you know, her mother, there's a few brief flashbacks or a few references. And I, I want to show the closeness, but I don't want to dwell on it or didn't want to dwell on it in either a melodramatic way or even like a time consuming way. So I just, I wanted to, to figure out a way to convey, like, this is what the mother's personality was. This was her role in Sally's life. And I kind of went back and forth and um, this is, this is from page 89. So, and she's actually Sally. It's the week that Noah hosts TNO and she's talking to him. She says, in fourth grade, my class had a hamster named Barnaby, who I loved so much that I told my mom I wanted a tattoo of him. She said if I promised to wait until I was 21, if I still wanted it, she'd get one with me. Obviously, by the time I was 21, the only reason I still wanted a hamster tattoo was to hold my mom to her end of the bargain. Just as I had, he reached out his fingers. They too were perfect, long and slim and straight. And when they brushed against my skin, I thought that if I could live inside this moment forever, I would. But he withdrew them quickly. He said, I take it that's why it says mom. Hers said Sally. The amazing part is that we didn't coordinate it, I said. We did it separately in different rooms to surprise each other. And when we realized what we'd done... I paused. This had been 15 years early. This had been 15 years before at a tattoo place in downtown Kansas City. And afterward, we'd gotten enchiladas for lunch. Because my mother hadn't been an ostentatious or performative person, it had taken me a long time until college, really, to realize how smart and funny she was and how generously compassionate. Whenever I described embarrassing things I'd done, she'd say, oh, I can imagine doing that. Or I think most everyone feels that way. 
To Noah, I said, when we realized that she'd gotten her hamster to say Sally and I'd gotten mine to say mom, I started laughing and she started crying. And she wasn't one of those moms who cry all the time. But now I understand why she did. Do you want to say anything about that? No, I also. <laughs> Amen. No, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. But I mean, I think I think it I think it speaks for itself. Where do you write? I have a little office um, sort of on the side of my family's house in, in Minneapolis. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I go for walks. And because because I, I live in the land of 10,000 lakes, I, I sometimes walk toward or around a lake. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Um, with romantic comedy, the first people I showed were my aunt, my aunt Ellen, and my brother, whose name is PG. And they both, um, neither of them writes fiction, but they're both very smart and very frank. And they they definitely, um, they're not like blindly praising, but they were encouraging. How have you dealt with rejection? Do, do you mean writing or other? Can be either. I mean, you know, I think you just dust yourself off. Like, what are you going to do? Like, I don't, there's, there's a famous piece of writing advice, which which sort of like inverts the rejection dynamic where it's something like, oh, you know, if you're submitting your fiction to publications, you should try to get a hundred rejections a year. And obviously then it's like, you're putting yourself out there, you know, you're learning to be resilient. And I, I think that is an interesting philosophy. I mean, you know, no one really wants to get a hundred rejections a year, but I, I think it's like, you just have to kind of think, well, am I going to let other people tell me whether I'm good at this or whether I have something to say, or am I just going to kind of persist in the hope that like I get to decide. What is your favorite word? Funny because I think that when I was on before, I, did, I, I almost was like, Oh, I should go back. Would it, do you, I feel like the two words that I like are kerfuffle and, and brouhaha. <laughs> did I already say those? I mean, it was a while ago, but I don't know if anyone else had said kerfuffle. And I do sort of remember that. It's also like saying, what's your favorite color? And then if, you know, if I repeat, I'm either repetitive or consistent. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. I'm really, really appreciative. Um, thank you so much. If you like today's show with Curtis Sittenfeld, author of the novel Romantic Comedy, check out my first interview with her on her short story collection, You Think It, I'll Say It. We talked about her return to short fiction, character likability, and the falseness of social media. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 400 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. 
so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with T.C. Boyle, Sebastian Barry, and Adrian Brodeur. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.